Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. Well, this morning I want to talk about the church and state before us, and you know it's a delicate balance. These two institutions that tend to rub up against one another and many times presents for us a constant tension. Uh, You know in your Bibles that uh, Jesus Himself was confronted uh, really as a trap that was set by Him by the Herodians who were totally absorbed in the state and the Pharisees who totally sensed a separation of church and state, at least in their day, synagogue and the Roman Empire. And they were challenging Him on whether to pay taxes, a poll tax. And you'll remember that He asked them to bring him a coin. Now they thought if he says they should pay the poll tax, then he's not truly a revolutionary at all. He's really one who's subjugating himself to the Roman state and it would discredit him with his followers. On the other hand, if he said not to pay the poll tax, the Herodians would label him an insurrectionist and he could be arrested by Roman authorities. But Jesus went to neither of those extremes, did he? If you remember there in the uh, Gospel of Matthew. Instead of calling for the abolition of the state or abolishing the state, he instead recognizes that man has an obligation to the state if he lives in it. I remember a young man who came to me and for hours really in my office went on end about how he shouldn't pay taxes. He hadn't paid taxes in several years. He didn't think it was right for the government to levy taxes against the citizens. It wasn't in the Constitution, etc., etc. But then I asked him, I said, well, do you drive on the roads? And he said, well, sure. And I said, well, those are paid by taxes. Do you send your kids to public schools? He said, well, certainly I do. Well, those are paid by taxes. Jesus said, render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's. Because on that coin, as on our dollar, is the United States government or the Roman Empire. And he said, we have an obligation to the state. He didn't absolutize the state, though. He didn't abolish it, but he didn't make it absolute. Because then he turns around and he says, and render unto God the things that are God. Jesus saw that there was a delicate balance even in the New Testament times. And he recognizes that balance and he affirms both the church and the state as legitimate. Both have their place. Both have legitimate claims on a person's life, on a Christian's life. I want you to know, of course, that the church and the state are different. There's no doubt about that. And we can see those differences in some word associations that I want you to jot down on your outline on those scales that have church and state. Under church, you might write the word love. Under state, you might write the word law. We think of the state, we think of law. The church, love. The church is associated with something that's voluntary. The state with something that's mandatory. The church inspires. The state rules. The church transforms. The state can only manage. The church persuades. The state uses power. The church speaks of transcendent things. The state regulates temporary things. Within the church you find meaning and purpose. Within the state, method and practice. 
In the church there is forgiveness. But appear before the bar of the state and there is un an unyieldedness. Please, Officer Reynolds. <laughs> Under church, the emphasis is on becoming right. But the state simply says, do right. Under the church, write spiritual life because that's its chief concern. Under state, write social order for that is its central focus. You see, there's a delicate balance between the church and the state. And that balance sometimes becomes imbalanced. When it's balanced, there's a healthiness that is, that is given to a people. When there's an imbalance, bad things happen. History's shown us that. For instance, when the church dominates the state, when the church dominates the state, spiritual life soon degenerates into religious oppression. John Calvin is a good lesson from the 1500s when he attempted to establish a religious state in the city of Geneva in Switzerland. At that point in time, he set up a small council to govern the city. And in that small council, citizens, every citizen was asked to give personal assent to a list of evangelical doctrines. Children were required by their parents, not asked, required by their parents to be taught these doctrines. There were lay inspectors who were enlisted who would then observe day to day the conduct of the citizens, kind of serving as moral policemen during that time. It didn't work. Fact is, it didn't even last two years. And as much as the people of that city loved John Calvin, two years later, this experiment turned completely sour. Calvin's government was overturned and he was abolished, banished from the city of Geneva, Switzerland. On the other hand, history shows us when the state dominates the church, moral life degenerates into an iron-fisted tyranny. That's the ultimate result. Just ask any citizen of the former Soviet Union, or Romania, or Korea, or China. After the French Revolution, there was an attempt made to make the state of France thoroughly secular. Sunday was even done away with as a church day, abolished. But that experiment too collapsed. And Edmund Burke's analysis of it should forever be remembered by those who think a secular state is a possible reality. He writes, and I quote, We know that man is by his constitution a religious animal. That atheism is against not only our reason, but our instincts. And that it cannot prevail long. The attempt to build a secular state is not so much irreverent as it is irrational. That's what history has shown. You cannot suppress the moral inclinations and the religious desires of man. Any man, at any time, at any culture, ultimately it will bubble back to the surface. Historian Will Durant backs up Burke's analysis with this research. He says, and I quote, There is no significant example in history of a society successfully maintaining moral life without the aid of religion. So in balance, and when I say balance, I'm talking about a healthy balance. The state keeps the church vibrant by giving it the freedom of expression in a voluntary manner for its citizens while at the same time the church keeps the state vibrant by morally energizing its citizens 
who participate in the social and community life of that nation or that community. This is the balance of church and state. Today, however, we speak often of the wall of separation between church and state. And I want to take a look back concerning how that wall was built. I am convinced that much of the history of America, what is today considered a wall, was in fact at the beginning of our country really more like a marriage between church and state, where two honored institutions honored and respected one another for the special and unique roles that each played in our national life. I call it on your outlines the integration of church and state, a marriage that lasted, and I'm, these are my dates, that I believe lasted from 1776 to where then it breathed its last real breath in 1962. You know, for the last two weeks, it's been my privilege to read a lot of historical documents and quotes from our founding fathers and those who preceded them on into the 1800s, to read documents and statements by different politicians and those who led our country. And I want you to know, there were times, it's a healthy exercise because there were times I found myself near, near tears, really. There were times I, I felt my heart swell up with pride as I read these documents, read these statements from the great men and politicians of our past, as I experienced what I believe was a deep spiritual identification with those who founded our country in their letters and in their words. Let me just read a few samplings. For instance, listen to George Washington. He said this, it is impossible to rightly govern without God and the Bible. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. Listen to President John Adams. The highest glory of the American Revolution was this. It connected in, in, in one indissoluble bond the principles of civil government with the principles of Christianity. Listen to John Jay, one of the authors of the Federalist Papers with Alexander Hamilton, the first Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, and uh, ironically also President of the American Bible Society. He says, and I quote, Providence has given to our people the choice of their rulers, and it is the duty as well as the privilege and the interest of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. Noah Webster, from Webster's Dictionary fame, and one of our founding fathers says, the religion which has introduced civil liberty to us is the religion of Christ and the apostles. Patrick Henry said, it cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians. Not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. Those are incredible statements, aren't they? Don't they just kind of make your heart fill up with pride as you think back and as you have an identification with what these men are saying, 
those who came to the Constitutional Convention uh, had to fulfill requirements by their own states to get there, to serve in public office there first, to then come to the Continental Congress. And I've listed on your outlines just one of the requirements from one of the states, the state of Delaware, though I could have quoted many of the other states like North Carolina or Pennsylvania, New York or Massachusetts, but in Article 22 of the Constitution of Delaware, to be elected to public office, you had to profess this. Every person who shall be chosen, a member of either house or appointed to any office or place of trust, shall make and subscribe to the following declaration to wit. I, and you put your name there, do profess faith in God the Father and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, and in the Holy Ghost, one blessed God forevermore. And I do acknowledge the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration. <laughs> That's what it took to be a member of the House of Delaware to go to the Constitutional Convention. And the same with North Carolina and the others, as I have mentioned. And such were the gathering of that convention of thoroughly religious Christians that began our country. Even the great institutions of higher learning, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, all those were dedicated not to just education, but to the propagation of the gospel. In fact, Harvard's official motto was, and I quote, for Christ and His church. If you look at the purpose statement of Yale University, you will find it reads as follows, and I quote, to plant and under ye divine blessing to propagate in this wilderness the blessed Protestant religion. Those were some of the founding colleges and universities of our great land. The Northwest Ordinance of 1789, which is a paper that many put in the same category as the Declaration of Independence in our Constitution, was an ordinance to govern the peoples in the primitive territories, the wilderness north of the Ohio River. And I've listed a quote there from you with a blank because I want you to think about how you would fill it in if you were here today looking back. It says, and I quote, religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, blank shall be forever encouraged. What would you put there? Well, with us looking over the high wall of separation in church of state and seeing that glaring word religion, we would most likely put the church shall be forever encouraged because that's the church's duty. But this Northwest Ordinate, signed on by so many of our founding fathers as a document to lead and govern these new territories, read this way, religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, schools shall be forever encouraged. Education. You see, reading these documents and quotes, one finds no hint of a wall between church and state. That's why it's so good to go back and not listen to what is propagated through the media, but read the documents and the founding fathers for themselves firsthand. It's still there. There was no wall. It was more like, if I could use a figure, it was more like a revolving door between church and state. A tremendous harmony and integration. Uh, people didn't think much about it. It just happened spontaneously because of the universal Christian faith that pervaded our country 
in those days. Now, some of you say, well, yeah, but didn't the First Amendment set up that wall? Well, when you read the First Amendment in the context of all that I'm saying, it becomes very clear that the intent of our fathers was that no one Christian denomination should be elected by the state and preferred by the state to rule over any other. I think that was clearly the intent. But what is so remarkable about our nation's history, at least up until the 20th century, is not some fictitious wall of abolishing the church from the state, but the incredible integration, indeed accommodation and harmony between those two honored institutions. You know, when the French sociologist Alexis de Tocqueville studied American life in the 1830s. And here's an outsider coming in, and sometimes an outsider can see culture better than you can see yourselves. And he studied thoroughly American culture, and even to this day we look back on his works as some of the preferred works to accurately understand what American life was like in the 1800s. Here's the observation he made about our country. He said, upon my arrival in the United States, the religious aspect of this country was the first thing that struck my attention. The Americans combined the notions of Christianity and of liberty so intimately in their minds that it is impossible to make them conceive the one without the other. Religion in America must be regarded as the foremost of their political institutions of that country. From the earliest settlement, politics and religion contracted an alliance which has never been dissolved. Well, never say never, right? It's always wrong to say never. Because I believe that alliance has been dissolved thoroughly and in some ways completely. And it began with what I call a legal separation prior to the true divorce in 1962. For sure, what had been a healthy marriage had already been undermined between church and state long before 1962. There had been trouble in this marriage before that date. But in 1962, in a case involving Engel versus Vital, a case revolving around a voluntary and non-denominational prayer for New York school students, a prayer that read this way, I'll quote it, Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon Thee, and we beg the blessing upon us, our parents, our teachers, and our country. That was the prayer. The court declared that prayer unconstitutional. Now listen to what that means. It means, by being declared unconstitutional, that it was against the will and the design of the founding fathers as embodied in the Constitution. That means that if they had heard that prayer then, as they saw it, they would declare such a prayer to be unconstitutional based on the First Amendment. You've got to be kidding. Really. You have to be kidding. When the delegates had to profess to the inspiration of Scripture, not just a faith in Christ, well, they, where they did and still do open up every Senate meeting with a prayer, where they talked about, like Thomas Jefferson, that the Bible needed to be taught in schools, and they weren't even sure about his faith in Christ. You're going to tell me that a non-sectarian prayer would have been declared unconstitutional by them? There's no way. There's absolutely no way that would have taken place. 
Prayer, though, the court declared in 1962, and this is what they said, breaches the constitutional wall of separation between church and state. Now, you know, many people are surprised to know that the words separation of church and state are nowhere to be found in the Constitution. But young students growing up have heard that word used so many times, as well as teachers, that they think it's embodied in our original documents, and yet it's not there at all. It was first used by President Thomas Jefferson in 1802, and here's how he used it. Here's the context. He was responding to a letter by the Danbury Baptist Association in Danbury, Connecticut. You see, the association there in Connecticut had heard that there was a rumor. They had heard of a rumor, and that rumor said that a particular denomination was soon to be established as the national denomination over the United States. And so, because of that rumor, Jefferson wrote back to the Danbury Baptist Association to calm their fears, declaring, and I quote, that the Constitution clearly prevented such an act, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. That's the context. But what Jefferson meant in 1802 did not in any way resemble what the court meant in 1962. Jefferson meant no state church, no religion religious church for the state. On the other hand, the Congress of 1962 meant no religion, period, period. The prayer decision of 62 signaled not only the legal separation of church and state, but I think it also gave public notice of a new judicial activism by the courts that it had arrived, though it had been brewing for some years. In fact, as far back as 1947, the Supreme Court had been indicating a tendency to settle particular cases more in accordance with the judge's social preconceptions than with the Constitution. A tendency that had roots traced back to a particular dominant theory at the Yale Law School, the Yale Thesis, it was called, and it's described by Arthur Schlesinger this way. I'm quoting. He says, the Yale Thesis crudely puts it that any judge chooses his results and then reasons backward. The ambiguity of precedence, the range of applicable doctrine, are all so extensive that in most legal cases in which there is reasonable difference of opinion, a judge can come out on either side without straining the fabric of legal logic. A wise judge knows that political choice is inevitable. He makes no false pretense of objectivity and consciously exercises the judicial power with an eye to social results. Now, I don't think a judge necessarily will adhere to that publicly, but privately, with an eye to social results, oftentimes strains legal logic to support it. Simply put, the court discovered that it could steer society in any number of directions and justify it as constitutional. I like what columnist Joe Sobrin notes. He said, the court's notion of constitutionality today have corresponded to the liberal agenda with suspicious consistency. For instance, no sooner had liberalism taken up the cause of legal abortion than the courts then suddenly discovered that all abortion laws, even the most permissive in all the states, were now unconstitutional. A new judicial activism. One dissenting judge, by the way, in the 1962 school prayer decision 
warned what he perceived in some of the other justices when he said, I see a passive or even active hostility to religion here. Now after 1962, we watched that growing hostility move into the public arenas with different court decisions. In 1965, the court ruled that freedom of speech and press is, press is guaranteed to all students unless the topic is religion in schools, at which time such speech becomes unconstitutional. In 1965, the court ruled if a student prays over his lunch, it is unconstitutional for him to pray aloud. In 1969, the court ruled that it's unconstitutional for a war memorial to be erected in the shape of a cross. In 1976, the court ruled it is unconstitutional for a board of education to use or refer to the word God in any of its official writings. In 1980, the court ruled it was unconstitutional for the Ten Commandments to hang on the walls of a classroom since the students might be led to read them. In 1985, the court ruled it is unconstitutional for a school graduating ceremony to contain an opening or closing prayer. Freedom of religion has moved to freedom from religion in that short span of time. And what effects has that legal separation had? Divorce between the church and state, starting publicly in 62, has had a dramatic impact, I think, on our society. Much the same way a marital divorce dramatically and always impacts children, and it's always negative, by the way. Such has been the same in our day. And I don't think the following graphs are the result of coincidence. They are the first fruits of secularism. Well, you can see for yourselves what freeing our schools, our public institutions, what cleansing our public life from religion has meant in terms of our national and social life. You can look at marriage since the separation of church and state in 1962. The divorce rates speak very clearly pictorially, don't they? Or violence since 1962. Or out of wedlock pregnancies since 1962. Or sexually transmitted diseases since 1962. Or on the following page when it comes to education. SAT scores since 1962. Today I believe we are in a more dramatic third stage of church-state relations. Separation has given way to what I believe is the alienation of church from state. The message today is that the church and religion doesn't count in public life anymore. It's not a player. And nowhere is that message more strongly felt than it was or heard any louder than it was in 1973 when the state, listen, the state assumed the power to define when human life began. Against all moral, philosophical, and religious precedents. The only thing that remained in 73 was secular pragmatism. And with a stroke of the pen, it defined human life, the state. Remember? Power. Rule. It's a scary thing when you lose that balance. In that decision, we lost that delicate balance. 
In fact, there is even more hostility today against the church and religion than ever before. In fact, Stephen Carter's words from Yale University ring clear. We live in a culture of disbelief where the liberal media mocks Christianity and pictures Christians at best as nerds, but mostly as hypocrites. You know, I always am interested in how the media says, no, we just simply portray the way life really is. You know, you know, gangster rap, all kinds of things, sexual promiscuity, that's just the way life is, violence. But you know, I know how you live, I know how I live. We come to church, we read bi the Bible, we have Bible studies, we seek religious counsel from people. Have you ever seen the way life really is with your life reflected on TV? You ever see a group of actors go into a Bible study? You ever see a guy seek out a pastor for counsel? You ever see him attending church on a regular basis, though most of America does that? Do you ever see that portrayed through the media in any way? No, it's rid, totally rid of religion, except in some hypocritical and sarcastic sense. It's because it's secular. It's because our country is being moved by forces to be secular. There are cultural elitists who seek to reduce the rights of anyone who's religious more and more into a box or a corner or a closet while convincing a non-thinking public that it's illegitimate for the church to do what in fact it has been anointed to do, and that is to act forcefully on moral issues. Today in alienated America, you put the word reverend, the initials reverend, are fundamentalist in front of someone on the nightly news before they speak, and you have sent a signal in advance to the American public that we're going to show this, but he really doesn't have a right to speak. His opinion doesn't count, and we're going to tolerate this for the next 30 seconds. I want you to know we're taking a grave risk in freeing society from the church and letting the state predominate. Cicero said many, many years ago, and I'm quoting, religion is indispensable to private morals and public order, and no man of sense will attack it. James Madison said it this way, we have staked the whole future of the American civilization not upon government, far from it, but upon the capacity of each and all of us to govern ourselves, to control ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. But if you want to go to somebody who's been on the other side of the wall for a long time, you don't need to turn to anyone but Alexander Solzhenitsyn. When he received the Templeton Prize, he stood before a large body of secularists and stunned them when he said this, Over half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of older people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen our beloved Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's while this has happened, they would say. But since then, I have spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution. And in the process, I have read hundreds of books collected hundreds of personal testimonies and have already contributed eight volumes of my own towards the effort of clearing away the rubble left by this upheaval. But if you were to ask me today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's all. Men have forgotten God. It's 
So what's a Christian in this age of alienation to do? Let me give you five words from the Scriptures that I think give us some biblical boundaries. And because of time, I'm going to move pretty quickly through these. These are just five words to consider as we respond to the state. I'm not asking us to go back to being a Christian nation, by the way. But I am asking you to be a Christian. These five words. The first is prayer. 1 Timothy says, I urge you, I urge you, on behalf of all men, especially for kings and all into authority, to pray for them. In a democracy, it is extremely important that you vote, but it is even more important that you pray. Secondly, submission. Romans 13 speaks of submitting to those in authority, to obeying the laws, to paying the taxes. I want you to star that one and read it later because it's probably the clearest declaration of the Christian's response to government in all of the Scripture. Thirdly, there is the word influence. Matthew 5, 13-16, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. That means we cannot afford not to be involved in the world. Not of it, but we cannot be, afford to not be in it. Sharing the truth of God's Word, calling people back to Jesus Christ. Fourthly is accountability. And the Bible leaves us a huge legacy, especially in the Old Testament of those prophets who would challenge political heads, whether it be David or a whole country, it would call them back to moral accountability. And I love the real man of the book of Luke, John the Baptist, who would run alongside the carriage of Herod the king, and he would look at him and he would say, it's wrong for you to take another man's wife. It's wrong. He didn't, he didn't get in all the victimization he didn't talk about how it didn't, the marriages didn't work out. He didn't get lost in all the rhetoric. He just simply went to God's Word and he said, it's wrong for you to do this. And it struck a chord in the hearts of people. And later, they flooded out to find one moral man who had the courage to say what was right and what was wrong. And then finally, I would say there's the word resistance. Acts 5, Daniel 3, and other passages. You know, I don't agree with breaking the law to keep people from breaking God's law, but I do believe that if there comes a place where the law of the land asks me to break God's law, then I must resist. The apostles are great examples because they're the ones who wrote in the midst of a Roman Empire to submit to the government. Yet at the same time, when that government asked them to stop preaching publicly, the gospel of Christ, they said these words in Acts 5. They said, we must obey God rather than men. There are points of resistance in this tenuous balance between church and state. But these five words, prayer, submission, influence, accountability, resistance, they form the boundaries, the context for the Christian's relationship with the state. Now let me draw off of those and give you three spe specific applications just for you to consider as you leave. The first is as a parent. As a parent, we must not raise our children to simply get by in culture. We must labor to empower them with a vision to challenge it. When God created His child, Adam, He gave him a vision to challenge the world. He said, be fruitful, fill the earth, and listen, subdue it. Do you hear the call to challenge? Kids grow up passively being entertained. They need to be called by their parents, modeled by their parents, with a vision 
to challenge this culture for the good, to be a knight of the round table, of goodness, of righteousness, for Christ's sake. But it will take your modeling and your encouragement and your vision infused into them to help them get there. You know, I hear little messages whispered through my soul from time to time of my mom and dad. Statements they would make. And I would hope that after I'm gone, my four kids would hear this message blow through their soul from time to time. For Christ's sake, make a difference. That's what I'd like them to hear from me. For Christ's sake, make a difference. Secondly, we must not be passive, but proactive as individuals. We must raise up alternative structures that help people who are caught in moral dilemmas. I love what they did up in Conway where some parents got together, put together a sex education program that challenged the more permissive one of Planned Parenthood and won out in the school board. That's what I'm talking about. Proactiveness within your community. Or those who got together and formulated Bethany as a way of an alternative to abortion, a person stuck with an unplanned pregnancy. Or helping those out of poverty with things like STEP rather than giving more money to a government institution that pays for administrators. Or helping people who are in counseling, moving them to counsel, getting aside rather than just saying, yeah, you can get divorced. Giving them an easy answer, an easy out. But moving them to work through their problems where they can grow and mature. We think of the Life Skills Center in the future where we're going to sit and help our community think through issues of finance and marriage and communication and all that and common cause where you can go out and make a difference. Just one thing, the power of one doing one thing well for our community because a republic doesn't just care for itself, it cares for its people. That's a church and state that's healthy. But we must not be passive as Christians, but proactive. Because change will never come from the top down. It comes from the bottom up. And then as a church, we must not be silent, but prophetic to our culture. It is, I believe, my responsibility to help hold my society morally accountable. To be unafraid, even though sometimes it brings persecution and shame, to stand up in the midst of an ungodly generation and say, you know, that's wrong. And this is right. But I don't want to do that in just biblical phraseology. I want to use a persuasive logic that captures a pluralistic culture with their own common values. Remember two years ago when we used the abortion commercial on TV and it caused a stir all over the state? You know, if you were to think back on that commercial, it didn't have one Christian saying in it, but it gave a strong Christian message. It started out with the Indian and said, not so long ago, they said, these people are not fully human. And then it showed a black, are these people? Or the Jews, are these people? See, it called upon a common value of a pluralistic culture to think back on its history, what it has done, the mistakes, the horrible, heinous crimes it had made against people when it thought it knew better by its reason, by its secular logic. And it says, now we're making the same mistake with these people. And it showed an unborn child. See, that's what I talk about when I say reasoning with the culture in an absolutely clear logic with their own values. That's part of what the church is supposed to do. Not go out and beat them with the Bible, but it does mean for us to go out and to speak clearly. 
As one person said, all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. I want you to know, starting tomorrow night, we're going to show that commercial again on every primetime program throughout the week, every news program. We're going to put it in the newspaper, and it's going to cause a stir again. And you're going to have an opportunity as the church to be prophetic if you have the courage to do so. Church and state. It's a very, very delicate balance. But it will only be held in balance when we render the things to Caesars that are Caesars and the things that are God's to God. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.